Um, any game show or reality TV show watchers out there that you're willing to admit? Okay, what's your favorites? Survivor. What was that one? Jeopardy. Okay, probably got some Will of, For- Will of Fortune. Okay, yep. Family Feud. You know, um, I will tell you, as much as I love some of these game shows and reality shows, um, I, I, I like them, but sometimes I like the eliminations a little more. They can be kind of fun to watch, you know. But so here's a little test to see how well do you know some of the elimination phrases that are used to kick people off shows. First one's very easy. I'm embarrassed to put it on here. You are the weakest link. Goodbye. What's the show? Weakest link. See, too easy. Shouldn't even put that in there. Um, Here's one. The tribe has spoken. Survivor. Survivor. Oh, Survivor fans out there. See, if you know this one. You've been evicted. Big brother. That is correct. Big brother. Awesome. Uh, Here's another one. One of my favorites. You are the last team to arrive. I'm sorry to tell you, you've both been eliminated from the amazing. Anybody love that show? I love to just see where they go. I love to see the other countries. Man, that is one of my favorites. Um, Here's another one. Please pack your knives and go. Uh, not Hell's Kitchen. Anybody know this one? Top Chef. Very good. Top Chef. Very good. I have to admit, I don't think I've ever seen that show. Um, here's another one of my favorites. I'm out. Oh, there it is. My Shark Tank fans right there. I love Shark Tank. New episodes now on Friday nights on ABC. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, here's another cooking one. Please turn in your apron. I think there may be two possibilities on this one. Uh, It's not Hell's Kitchen. It's possibly Master Chef, but there's another one that I picked up on this one. It's a fun one that I haven't watched in a while. It's called Worst Cooks in America. Anybody ever seen that one? This is a fat, man, these really are bad cooks. They really are bad cooks. And it's kind of funny. And here's, I think, the last one. After this record-setting number of votes... This contestant, you are safe. The yeah, other means we have to say goodbye to the other contestant. Dancing with the stars. Not dancing with the stars, although that would be close. That would be close. The voice. Not the voice, but you're on the right path. American Idol. And I went with the original. That was always Ryan Seacrest's phrase. After a, a record number of 66 million votes, you know, I love the original, not so much the ones anymore. And I will say, as much as we might enjoy a good competition show, you know, even Will of Fortune, you know, he has to say goodbye to the two losers at the end, right? <laughs> and get the other one in the final. Um, no one wants to be eliminated. No one likes that feeling, do we? To be eliminated, ejected, relegated, whatever word we want to use, to be removed from the competition. Or in life, to be asked to leave whatever, that job, that friend group. That's a horrible feeling, isn't it? We don't want that. It's a painful, so much emotion. And as we continue looking at God's big picture this week, we come to our final look in the Old Testament. So if you're not a fan of the Old Testament, today's it. We're going to the New Testament next week, so stick with me. But what we're going to see today is that the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, are essentially voted off the island. That's what happens. They're voted off the island. They're conquered, and they're taken into exile, and they're forced to live among their enemies. Why? What happened? How could God let this happen? 
Let's dive in and see today if we can get some answers and see how this fits in and even shapes the big picture. So if you were here last week, you remember we had a very depressing look at the nation of Israel. They go into the promised land. They get what God had been promising them forever, and immediately they forget God. They turn their back on him. They fall into the practices of the surrounding cultures, and within a generation, they don't know God or worship him. So they start doing these vile things like child sacrifice, but God being rich in mercy and long-suffering, he raises up judges and brings them back. But it's this vicious cycle that doesn't seem to end. And then you get to this place where the people are like, oh, but we want a king now, which is this incredible moment of just rejecting God as their king. And, but that didn't work out too well either for them. You know, they had three kings under a united kingdom. But then after that, there was a revolt and a civil war. And the fourth king comes to power and the nation splits in two. And you had 20 kings in the northern kingdom, all evil, like on this game show to say, I can be more evil than you until you know, they are just obliterated. Then you had eight somewhat good kings in the southern kingdom of Judah, but 12 evil. And then all the time this is going on, you've got prophets that are rising up, men of God, speaking to them to try to encourage them to come back to God. And they really never do. They're reminding them of the covenant God made with them and they made with God at Mount Sinai. In the northern kingdom, you find the kingdom of Israel, you have prophets that maybe you've heard of, like Elijah or Elisha. These are kind of two of the big names. Great stories with these two. You know, Elisha is calling the people back, and he's kind of had enough. And King Ahab and Jezebel, just horrible king and queen. He's like, all right, we're going to have a competition. They go to the top of Mount Carmel. He says, we're going to build altars. We're going to put sacrifices on it. We're going to pray. And whoever's God, whoever God's, an- God's answer Whoever's God answers, there we go. That's who's the real God. And I love Elijah. He is so relatable to me in some ways because he's like, you know, they're, they're cutting themselves. They're screaming and yelling and crying out, trying to get their false gods to consume the sacrifice. And he's taunting them. He's saying things to them like, oh, maybe scream louder. Maybe he's in the bathroom. <laughs> It's in your Bible. I love that. I just love that moment of realness because I would say something like that, you know, and nothing happens. And then Elijah Elijah says, okay, let's make this a fair fight. Get some water, douse my sacrifice, douse my altar, build a trench, and we're just going to fill it up with water. And he prays, says, God, if you're the real God, send fire from heaven. And fire comes down. It consumes the sacrifice. It licks up every drop of water. And you and I would probably look at that and go, that was a cool moment. Surely the people repented and turned back to God. And they didn't. And they didn't. Nothing really could pull the northern kingdom back from how far they had drifted from God. And in 722 BC, the northern kingdom was conquered and destroyed by the Assyrians. Look at how it's described in 2 Kings 17. It says the king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. All this took place because they had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. 
The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord, their God, that were not right. Here's just an example. I think I'd jump ahead on the screen. They built themselves high places in their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles. They worshiped idols. Though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all the prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. They were stiff-necked. They were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees. Man, there's some strong language here in there. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he made with their ancestors and the statutes he warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. Can you imagine that? They practiced divination and sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left, and even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. Wow. Sorry, I thought you, you, know, you probably came in today and thought, man, last week was depressing. We're going to get an uplifting one. We'll get there. But what an indictment against the people. God's presence would no longer be with them. He would no longer protect them because they continually rejected him. And Assyria came in and just destroyed them. And then you move to the southern nation of Judah, and you can see from that verse right there, it's not going to get much better. They lasted a little bit longer, but not much. 587 BC, Jerusalem is attacked by Babylon. And here's an important thing to know. Assyria was the world power, defeated Israel. They've now been defeated by Babylon, new world power in control. And Babylon comes in and captures thousands of people and carries them off to Babylon. But then a year later, they return to finish the job. They destroy the, build, the, the city and the temple. It's burnt. Take a look. It's burned to the ground in 2 Kings 25. It says, on the seventh day of the fifth month in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, his commander of the imperial guard and official of the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. He then carried into exile the people who remained in the city, along with the rest of the populace and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and fields. So Judah went into captivity away from her land. Like I said, sorry. Again, not starting out as a rousing, uplifting Sunday, is it? But why did this happen? Why is this in our Bible? Why do we have these stories I mean, we've read a little bit of why, haven't we? These vile, disgusting religious practices done by the people. They rejected God. They were worshiping false gods. They'd broken all the commandments. There was also more, though. When you read through the prophets, you, were, you see it wasn't just that. There was social injustice. They were ignoring the poor and the immigrant. And then you begin to see that there was one other thing. They had a reliance on political power. They were making these treaties with all these nations. We don't need God to protect us if we've got these nations around us. Again, more rejection of God. I think about this and I thought, hmm, relying on political power and military strength instead of God. Hmm, I wonder if we see any modern application to that. Well, I digress. And this is where, though, we begin to see the biggest problem, the biggest failure of the people. 
We go back to the very beginning of the story. Genesis, creation, Abraham, Moses. Every week, we're a broken record up here. Why was God doing what he was doing? It wasn't, he didn't pick Israel because they were so special and they looked pretty and they photographed well. He picked Israel because he had a plan for them. He had a plan. He said, I'm putting you in this land. If you look at the geography at the time, they were placed at the center of the world. The crossroads went through Israel. What a better place. There wasn't a better place for them to be positioned to reveal to the world that God was the one true God. That was his plan from the beginning. Blessed to be a blessing. And yet, time and time and time again, they became just like the people around them rather than teaching, telling, revealing the one true God to the rest of the world. Oh, man, their biggest failure was failing to be that blessing to the nations. God wants that. God wanted that. And as they continued in this failure, he knew something had to be done. And so, you know, what did he do? He did what he's going to do. He's not going to leave them to themselves and their own failures and their own sin. He's going to step in. And so what he does is he removes his presence. He allows the nations, the empires of the world to reset things. They get to hit the reset button to take people from what they knew and to refocus them on God and his purpose for them in the world. And that's why we see exile. So Israel is scattered. Judah carried off into exile in Babylon, a minority culture in a new city. There's new customs, there's new gods, there's new everything. And so as they are exiles in this city, the question is then, how should they live? How should they live among the enemy? Because this was the enemy. There's a few options, I think, that they had that, that they could have lived. The first thing is just simply this, isolation. They could separate themselves from the culture. And you see throughout history, sometimes that's happened where people will just find an empty spot of land and set up camp and they will isolate themselves completely from the new culture. They don't want to be corrupted by the evil Babylonians. So they'll just keep to ourselves, hold out, because hopefully this won't last very long. And we'll see in just a moment, there were some prophets even telling them it won't be long. You could also assimilate. They were pretty good at this. In fact, this is what they'd really been doing all along, just becoming like the cultures around them. But the problem with this one is this didn't seem to work out too well for them, did it? Assimilation is just, it seems like a really bad idea since that's what got them in the mess they're in anyway. Another another option would be opposition. We're going to stir things up. We're going to rebel. We're going to fight back. But that seems a little far-fetched considering the Babylonians have all the power. Maybe you could be subversive. That might could work. Become aggravated and aggravating enough to them that maybe they'll let you go home. That might work. But what did God want? What did God want them to do? Well, God continued to send prophets to them before the exile and during the exile. And remember, when we talk prophets, we're not talking fortune teller. 
They did talk about consequences that would come. But these were people, men who spoke on God's behalf, and they called people out of their sin. That's what they did. They were truth tellers, not fortune tellers. And they called them to repentance. They saw what was happening. And when people ignored them, which they did, they told them about the consequences of that sin, of their rebellion. And these prophets were really interesting people. If we're honest, you've got major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Those are long books, and they can be very hard to get through because there's a lot of depressing language in there. And these guys are kind of weird, to be fair, because like uh, you read about Isaiah. He walked around naked for three years. Better him than me, you know, did this as a sign of humiliation of the exile. And this, he did this before the exile. He's walking around naked to say, yep, this is how you're going to be. It's going to be humiliating. Three years. That's a long time. Ezekiel was told to lay on his side out in front of the crowds for a, over a year to represent the years of Israel's sin. And that sounds bad enough, right? Just laying on the ground. But no, that wasn't bad enough. He's told to cook his food in front of people. And his food was to be cooked over human excrement. It's in your Bible, folks. Read it. Enjoy it. <laughs> Isn't that wild? This, and you would think some of these things would be like, okay, that's getting my attention. It still didn't. They still rebelled. Judgment still came. And just like for us today, what was interesting for the people is they had to learn to filter between the true prophets and the false prophets, because just like today, there are true prophets, people who are speaking on behalf of God, and there are false prophets who are claiming to speak on behalf of God, but I'm going to tell you, they don't. And so what you find recorded is that even after the exile, when everybody's gone, the prophets predicted it, the people were all listening at this point. They're like, what are the prophets going to say? And after all, they'd been carried into exile, so they were right about this. So who's got a word from the Lord? Who's going to tell us what's happening next? And the problem was that they were willing to listen to just about anybody. They really liked the prophets who told them what they wanted to hear. And I will say prophets. Don't we all, though? Don't we all just kind of gravitate towards that? If you tell me that I'm a great person and I don't have a... Yeah, that's what I want to hear. You tell me my suffering's not going to happen long. Thank you. Yes, that's the word of the Lord I want to hear. But... What we find is that all these prophets that were saying some things, they, even though they said, thus saith the Lord, God says, not this Lord. It's not my word. In fact, there was this one guy, Hananiah, who wanted to encourage the people. And so he went around telling them this. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. So he's speaking on behalf of God, supposedly. He says, I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Now you're in exile. That's, woo, yes, break that yoke. You know, within two years, I will bring back to this place all the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar removed from here and took to Babylon. Man, isn't that the message you want to hear? Two years, great. We can do this for two years. And then we're going to get to go home. The problem wasn't true. He wasn't speaking for God. He was just making stuff up. But it's what the people wanted to hear, so they believed it, whether it was true or not. And after all, someone claimed something in the name of God, and they said it, and that's all they needed. Anyone, anybody see any modern-day application for this? Just curious. I keep saying this word. It's the word of the hour. Discernment. 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 
we have to learn, just like they did, to be discerning. But what we find back then was Jeremiah, a true prophet of God, who we are told in Jeremiah chapter 1 that God was calling him to be a prophet even before he was born. And his word from the Lord wasn't exactly what the people wanted to hear. Because you know what his word was? Get ready. Settle in. You're going to be there a while. You're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. Okay. Um, I'm 48. Uh, 48 plus 70 is what? 118. What does that mean for me? Am I going home? No. In fact, if you're 20 years old in the room, you're probably not going home. I mean, maybe eat right, exercise, maybe. This was a, a life sentence, wasn't it? It was a sentence to say, you are not getting out of here. Think that was a very popular message? Not at all. You hear these words and you think, wow, so now what am I supposed to do? In fact, for those that wanted to isolate or oppose, he even goes on to talk to them about that. And in Jeremiah chapter 29, look at what the prophet speaks the words of the Lord. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile. Notice he says, I carried into exile. He's taking credit for this. He says, from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters. Um, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city for which I have carried you into exile. Anybody got a problem with that? The enemy, seek the peace and the prosperity of the enemy. Pray to the Lord for the city because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Wow. Wow. Anybody see that one coming? If you read ahead, you did. But do you think they saw that coming? Do you think in all the options they saw about living as exiles among the enemy, they thought, settle down, seek the prosperity of the city? Tim Mackey, the Bible Project, calls this a third way of living as an exile. Subversion by surrender. He says, don't compromise, don't, but don't revolt. Settle in. Seek the prosperity of the city. Doesn't mean go along with everything your captors say. Still be faithful to me. Still be faithful to God, faithful to his word, faithful to his commandments. But settle in. And we see this lived out beautifully in the book of Daniel, where you have Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, young Hebrew men that were taken into captivity, and because of their heritage and because of their education and their upbringing, they were brought into the king's service. They're given jobs working for the enemy, and they must have been very good at those jobs because they rose in the ranks. They had audience with the king. These aren't slouches. So they must have been doing what they were told to do. They must have been helping the city. But then it came time 
for things would happen and they would be asked to compromise the ways of God. And they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do this. They didn't shrug their shoulders and just say, well, I guess we have to do this too. No, they were loyal to the king, but they were more loyal to God. And when it came time to resist, they did. But what's fascinating is how they resisted. You see, they didn't pick up flags with the name of God on it, and they didn't break into buildings and all these things. Their subversion came by surrender. Their subversion came by laying down their lives. How do I know? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Read the story in Daniel. Wonderful story for kids. If you had veggie tales, it's a wonderful story about a bunny. They were told to bow down to a golden idol of the king. And these three men refused. And what did they do? They didn't, they didn't give in. They came to them and they said, if you don't, we're going to throw you into a furnace. Did they surrender at that point? No. Know what they did? Take us. Take us. And on this side of the story, we get to look back and go, oh, but they survived. Do we think they knew they were going to survive? They didn't. Look at what they say going into this. They said, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your hand. But even if he does not. So there's some questions there. There's some doubt there. Even if he does not. We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. They resisted. They were opposing the king at this point, but not by fighting back, by laying down their lives. Daniel does the same thing. Daniel's told to quit praying, and he goes, I'm not going to quit praying. Praying is who I am. I worship God by praying. Well, if you don't stop praying, you're going to be thrown into a den of lions. Okay but I will not stop praying. And he gets thrown into the den of lions. And we know the story. Both of these groups were rescued miraculously by the hand of God. And God used that to turn the king's hearts towards them, which was great. But what we see is that they're carried into this evil land, in the land of the enemies. They're told to settle down, which they do. They rise up, but there's a line that they will not compromise and they know that they're willing to be submersive, subversive, but it means by surrendering, by giving up their own lives. This, fast, this idea is carried forward in the New Testament. You know, we today are compared to exiles in the way that we live. We're told to pray for our leaders, to pay taxes as good citizens, to live peaceably in the world but to be, be willing to lay down our lives if we're asked to violate God's ways, if we're asked to go against living as citizens of the kingdom of God. That's how we are subversive. And we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But you see, Jeremiah's message of settle in, you're going to be here a while, was not what the people wanted to hear. They wanted to go home. They wanted to get back to what, what they knew. But that wasn't going to be the case. You know, most of those prophets, they were telling them the message they wanted to hear. Jeremiah says, don't listen to those. Listen to the ones that are actually speaking from God. And those messages were pretty consistent. They'd started before exile and they continued during exile. Stop rebelling against God, they'd say. Stop worshiping idols. If you don't stop, judgment's going to come. Disaster's going to come upon you and you will deserve it. And this is the part of the story where these prophets are 
preaching and teaching, and, and we see that they introduce us to who God is because they show us that God is a jealous God. God does not want to share his affection with, for you with others. He wants your affection for him to be solely towards him. And he's jealous, not like a crazy ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend, but he's jealous because of his incredible love for us, his desires for us and his people to have abundant life. And God's wrath, his anger is real because he hates sin and he hates what sin has done to his creation and how it continues to destroy those he loves. I think about it like this. If you know somebody who's been diagnosed with cancer or you watch a loved one that struggles with addiction, are you ambivalent towards that cancer? Are you ambivalent towards that addiction? No, you hate it. You absolutely hate it because you see it ravaging their bodies. You see it destroying their lives. And you don't just look at it and go, well, that's just too bad. No, you hate it. You're in tears. You're crying out to God for deliverance. And what would you not be willing to do to stop that cancer or that addiction? You'd be willing to do anything. That's God. That's God willing to do anything to get us rescued from the sin that continues to just ravage us. And if we ended this message here in exile, it would be yet another really depressing week to come to church. Next week, we're all about Jesus. It's going to be really good to come back. But the message here, even this week with the prophets in exile doesn't end here. There's more depressing parts to come. I'm just going to warn you. But the message of the prophets also included something very important. It included a message of hope. Their message wasn't just, you're in judgment, settle in, things are bad. They're telling of how God's going to turn their failure and their exile into a story of hope and a story of restoration of all nations. God's going to bring them back to the promised land. Unfortunately, even after 70 years in exile, these people are still messed up. They still don't turn back to God. They go back, they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the walls, and they have the blessing of the captors, you know. But soon they're going to realize it's not the same, and then they would continue again in their rebellion. Man, human nature is human nature, isn't it? And as much as I, for me, it would be easy at that point to just go, okay, God, just write them off. Just be done with it. And yet we turn to the prophet Isaiah, and he has this message for them. Beginning in Isaiah 48, God tells them, he says, we're going to do, I'm going to do a new thing. You know this thing, Israel, that I've been calling you to do all the time that you just keep messing up over and over again? I'm going to do it for you. And I know you're stubborn, but God says this. He says, is it too small a thing for you to be my servant or, or for you to be my servant to restore to the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Wow, I'm not done. I'm going to do something new. And it's through the prophets that we are introduced to this new figure, this promised one, also known as a Messiah who is going to come, God's servant that's going to do what Israel failed to do. 
God wanted Israel to be the one to bring the nations to him. And he says, I get it. You can't do it. So remember that promise I made to Abraham? Remember the covenant I made with Moses? Remember that promise I made to David that his line would last forever? That's to come. That's on its way. But here's the catch. This person that is to come, this promised one, is not coming with an army. They're not coming with swords. They're not coming in to ravage the land. In fact, this one's going to be coming as a suffering servant. It's going to be rejected. It's going to be beaten. It's going to be killed. But he's going to live again. And his death and resurrection is going to provide the way for you for righteousness and reconciliation. And there's going to be this new covenant that God brings about and establishes with his people. And that's our topic for next week. (laughs) But even in exile... God's plan won't be stopped. God's desire for his people will continue even through their stiff-neckedness, their hard-heartedness, and he's going to continue to pursue them, to redeem them, and to reconcile those who are lost. Isn't that amazing? There is a message of hope even in exile. And I, I do want to remind you, this is called the big picture for a reason, And there's so much more in the Old Testament we could have talked about. There's some things that we just didn't have time. I mean, we could have talked about Ruth, an incredible story of a kinsman redeemer. We could have talked about Esther for such a time as this and how she was raised up to save her people. We could talk about the wisdom literature of Psalms or Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or even Job or this beautiful and troubling picture uh, of Hosea. And if you have time this week, let me encourage you to read it. Hosea is just this metaphor, this picture, a prophet who God called to say, I'm going to use your life to picture, to imitate what's happening with my people. And Hosea is told to to marry this woman, knowing that she's not going to be faithful to him. She runs around on him. She gets herself. I mean, she's prostituting herself out. And he has to go and buy her back from these men And God says, yep, this is the picture. This is the story. I'm you, Hosea. I'm the one that's going to buy my people back. And oh my goodness, what a beautiful story of God just coming time and time again. You know, it's tragedy to me is to read the Old Testament. I get it. You can get bogged down in the prophets. It is judgment and it's heavy. But when you read it, you really have to read it through the eyes to go. But the God who is there that is continuing to pursue, it's not an angry God who's mad at us. It's a God that loves us so much. Yeah, he's angry at what sin's doing to us. And he's willing to do anything, even come to earth himself to bring us back to him. Man, the Old Testament's amazing. It's this beautiful picture of God. You know, as we wrap up today... I know exile seems cruel, but the judgment, if we're honest, was really deserved. And even though it looks like God had left them, he hadn't. In fact, he even went with them into exile. There's this picture in Ezekiel where Ezekiel sees this vision of the presence of God leaving the temple. You know where where it went? Into exile with his people. He never left them. And what we see this week is that God can take our screw-ups and do something really good and beautiful from them. The exile for them, and sometimes our own exile, serves a bigger purpose in the big picture. God is going to bring them through it and from it 
there's going to be redemption. I love that. And God's kingdom, guess what? It's going to continue regardless of what earthly kingdoms rise and fall. There's a message for today in there. There were the Assyrians who were defeated by the Babylonians, who were defeated by the Persians, who were defeated by the Romans, and you could just keep going on and on, and earthly kingdom rise and earthly kingdoms fall. And not one of them will displace or replace the kingdom of God. We have to remember where our citizenship lies, and it's not here. It is in the kingdom of God. And as these kingdoms rise and fall, God's going to use them for his purposes. But let us not be foolish to think any earthly kingdom will ever replace the kingdom of God. That is what matters. And as I read this week, God's judgment is never his final word. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? I wish I'd have created that. I've read that somewhere. God's judgment is never his final word. And God's love and his mercy are more powerful than their sin and our sin. Wow. That's, the, that's, that's what we see through the prophets in exile. If you have time, I'll tell you, the Bible Project, I love that site. They have a video or two on every prophet in the Old Testament. They have two videos on exile that are amazing. I highly encourage you to watch them. And it's just this beautiful reminder of what exile is. It's a picture of alienation and our longing for more and the brokenness that exists in the world and how exile really is the human condition and how the Jewish people repeated that pattern even after exile and we continue to repeat that pattern today. But with God, there's a message of hope. God will send a king, a savior, a messiah. That's for next week. Let's pray.